If you will, turn your Bibles, if you haven't already done so, to Philippians chapter 1. Jim Whittle is going to bring God's Word to us this morning, so I'm going to read the text that he will be preaching out of, and his sermon will be based on picking up at the end of verse 18 of Philippians 1 and reading through verse 26. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary in your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. As soon as the reading of the God's holy and infallible word, may the grass wither and the flower fade when the word of our God, may it stand forever. Jim, come proclaim God's goodness to us. Good morning, church. Just got back from India on Friday. I love coming here first and uh, worshiping with you. Your worship is always so rich and uh, it's always spot on with the gospel. Chris, thank you for choosing the songs. I assume you're doing that. It always brings me into the presence of Christ and I, and I feel changed every time I, I'm with you. Um, just did two weeks of marriage conferences in India. It was a rich, rich time as we always see uh, such a tremendous transformation in the hearts and lives of these pastors and leaders in the church as, uh, as they study God's word to see what a Christ-centered marriage looks like. Sherry wasn't with me, but uh, another couple from Pennsylvania were, and it, it was a great time. Thank you for your prayers. Those are felt. We know you're praying and partnering with us in, in prayer and ministry, so thank you. So, this morning we're in Philippians chapter 1. It's one of my favorite passages. It's a, it's a lot of people's favorite passages. I've, I've had a couple people come up this morning after seeing it in the bulletin and say, this passage is really important to me. Well, it's, it's important to me as well. So I'm thankful to be here with you this morning. Now, I, I don't know, you get to see me a, a lot, but over here is the rock of our family, which is Sherry and, and uh, my wife. Uh, we've been married 35 years uh, Sherry's a home hospice nurse, and you, you could say that death is her ministry. She, she comforts and, and, uh, and helps the dying and the grieving. And so some time ago while I was in India, she, as we were talking on FaceTime, uh, she, she shared with me that she had lost an 85-year-old. You can turn it down just a little bit. I'm, I'm sure I'm plenty loud. So... While we were talking on FaceTime, she told me about her day, and uh, I call her early in the morning in India. It's, it's the previous evening here, and she had lost an 85-year-old woman that day, and, and the ironic thing was is that her 85-year-old husband had been on hospice care almost a year, and she, he had been one of Sherry's patients for a while, and then all of a sudden, the wife got sick really fast, and she was put into hospice, and in a few days, in less than a week, uh, she was dead, sleeping on the couch. And, and as you can imagine, her husband of 65 years was distraught, 
And because of his own illness and his problems with breathing, he immediately went into distress and he had to have treatment and, and, and put to bed. And, and all he could say was, I can't see her. I, I can't see her. You see, all he wanted to do at that point was sit and hold her hand for a while because it's over. It's, it's the end. And as Sherry was sharing this with me on FaceTime, I got all choked up, as even, even now, telling the story, and I began to weep for that man and his struggle to lose his best friend of 65 years. Death is hell. Nothing short of it. I, I don't know how Sherry does this week in and week out. I, I often ask her, I, I don't know how you do this. I, I couldn't do it. So, so it must be a gift from the Lord. And, and the reason she's able to do it, I'm convinced, is that she sees it as her gift to those families. She's doing it to exalt Christ in both life and in death. And that's what our passage is about this morning. In our passage, Paul is telling us about the uncertainty of his future. He, he doesn't know what tomorrow literally is going to bring. Now, none of us know exactly what tomorrow will bring. We, we talk like that, but I'm pretty sure that tomorrow morning I'll be up early and that I'll be drinking coffee by myself in the, in the living room for some quiet time. And then by 9 o'clock, I'll have... Uh, made Sherry breakfast and, and we'll spend some time together and then I'll be in my office doing what I always do, which is to read and study and to make phone calls and to get ready for India. I, I'm pretty sure unless there's an earthquake or something that that's what I'll be doing tomorrow morning. But Paul wasn't sure because he's in chains and his life is on the line. His future was uncertain. But I noticed that Paul's chief concern about his future is not about his life or his death, but that Christ would be exalted. And so it is with us, beloved. So it is with us. So there's three things that I wanted to share with you about the exaltation of Christ from this passage this morning. Three things about the, the gospel to show you. And the first is, is that Christ is exalted in deliverance. Now, the apostle is in chains in Rome, and every day he faces death, not just a wrestling match of captivity and humiliation and degradation, but every day Paul faces death because he has already been given the death penalty. The only reason he's alive is because he has appealed to Caesar for his case. And yet he says that, he says, I know that what, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Now, you think that's because Paul knows the future, that somehow as an apostle he's looked ahead and he knows he's going to be delivered from his chains? Has he had a vision that shows him preaching somewhere else without the death penalty? No, the answer to that is no. He, he's not talking about deliverance from his chains or from the death penalty. Paul is talking about his deliverance from fear and discouragement and disappointment. Look at verse 20 again. He says... It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with, with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul says that he has an eager expectation and hope of deliverance. 
that he will not be disappointed, that he will not be put to shame, that he will have sufficient courage to to exalt Christ whether he lives or, or whether he dies. And what he means, beloved, is that he is certain that the gospel will not let him down. Now, you know, some people are ashamed to tell others where they go to church. I'm, I'm sure you're not. This is a great church. I'm sure you're bragging about it in town. But some people are ashamed. They're afraid their friends would be disappointed if they found out where they went, that, that their church would somehow let them down. And, and some people are afraid of, are ashamed of their jobs. They prefer that you don't know what they do. And some, some, pe- some people, that's like lawyers and stuff, but some people, <laughs> some people are ashamed of, of their homes, where they live. Maybe they live in a trailer. They don't want you to know that they live in a trailer. Or maybe they make, make, they make too much money and they prefer you don't know that they live behind a gate. So, some people are ashamed of their family or where they went to school, Georgia. And so, <laughs> so some, yeah. So, some, some parents are ashamed of their children because they think that those children somehow reflect poorly on them as they've raised them. Their kids, their kids have let them down, and so they're afraid to share that what, what's going on in their lives' kids, I, I, their kids' lives. I see that a lot. But Paul says in Romans 1, in verse 16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, but because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. In other words... Paul will not be deterred from the the task of preaching the crucified and risen Christ because the gospel, the good news of salvation and righteousness in Christ alone, by faith alone, the gospel will not let him down. He knows that it's the only answer to life and and that the power of God to save sinners from judgment and, and degradation and slavery to self. And and that the gospel will not let anyone down who puts their hope and trust in a mighty deliverer and savior named Jesus of Nazareth. And and beloved, that gospel is not limited in, in its power to simply save you from hell. The gospel has so much power that it sets us free from the effects of sin. It sets us free from the slavery of sin, from from a slavery to ourselves, from a joyless existence. The the gospel gives us a life of purpose that exalts Christ and then gives others joy. And the deliverance that Paul needs is not for his trial to go away, but to have enough courage to face his life or death trial so that Christ is exalted in his life or in his death. And that's what Paul truly cares about. He wants Christ to be exalted. Now that's amazing. And that's the power of the gospel even working out in Paul. And Paul says his eager expectation and his hope of deliverance is the result of two main things. The prayers of the saints and the grace of the Holy Spirit. You can't read Paul's letters to any of the churches without coming away with a tremendous sense of Paul's love and concern for the church of Jesus Christ. Yet the truth is, is that inside the church is trouble. It's true in every church. There are the troublemakers of verse 15 that Paul talks about here in Philippians 1 that haunt him and cause him pain. 
and inside the church are the divisive leaders that confuse and confound the flock. And inside the church are the false teachers who teach that our good works merit forgiveness. And inside every church are picky and critical people who evaluate the leadership regularly. And all of that causes Paul great grief. You know, the prophet Hosea says that the church sometimes acts like a harlot. And, and you know, she does. I, I've experienced it firsthand. But you know what God's answer is for those who have been hurt and bruised by the church? God's answer is the church. We are the bride of Christ, beloved. Our, our destiny in the kingdom of God lies together, never separate. And the dragon, you see, the dragon seeks to cut us off from the flock. He, he, he wants you to take your hurt and be all by yourself where discouragement and cynicism reign. But together, you see, we are so important to God as his bride that he has given us, each in our families, individually, the gift of marriage so that every day, modeled in our own homes, is the depth of Christ's love and redemption for his people. And the church of Jesus Christ is so glorious in Christ that the picture in Revelation 21 is of a golden cube that is jewel-encrusted. And it's so big, it's unfathomable. It can't be built. And the Philippians have from day one been partners in prayer with Paul for the advancement of the gospel. And you see, your success, beloved, as a church is no less tied to your partnership in prayer with each other. Because of their prayers and the mighty working of the Holy Spirit, Paul is certain that the gospel will not let him down. And I know it's the same for you and me. Christ will be exalted in Paul's deliverance from fear. And that courage then allows him to face life or death. <clears throat> and that, that takes me to the second thing I wanted to show you is that Christ is exalted in death. Look again at verse 21 to 24. Paul says, for me to live is Christ <coughs> and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which, will I, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. I remember 35 years ago, I was in college. I had just come to faith. I'd been raised in the church, but rejected Christ as a teenager. And then God was gracious enough to send somebody to, to, to share the gospel with me my freshman year in college, and I was converted into the word of faith and the name it, claim it branch of the church, which is now kind of represented by Joel Osteen, and maybe in Atlanta that would be uh, Creflo Dollar. We, we would, I remember in college, we would read this passage, and we would conclude with great authority that Paul had authority over his own life and death, that the choice to live or die was his. And he could simply claim those things by faith. And then we thought that the average Christian has that power as well. And so we all wanted that kind of power. And, and we were sure it's just a matter of having enough faith and making the correct claims on God and saying the right things. And we would determine our life and our death. 
Well, beloved, the text doesn't teach that nonsense. And that's far from what Paul is saying. It wasn't a matter of authority, but a matter of courage. Every day, you see, Paul faces death in court. And every day he faced suffering for the gospel in chains, in loneliness, under critical scrutiny. And, and some in the church were even trying to hurt him. His life was hard. And he oftentimes grew weary and discouraged and his death was hanging over him. And so when he would think about his circumstances, when he would contemplate death, his thoughts went through this kind of pattern. He would think about it and he would say, you know, death would be great gain for me. All I have to do is stop my appeal to Caesar and I'll be put to death and I'll be with Christ. And that would be incredible. Then he would think some more and he would say, on the other hand, the church needs me as much now as ever. And so, you see, his choice was whether to quit his appeal and be executed or to live for the fruit of the gospel in the life of the church. And both of those propositions looked very good to him. So he was torn internally. But what he realized is the way to evaluate the decision was how would Christ be exalted? And so Paul said to live as Christ and to die as gain. Now, I've been to a bunch of funerals, and I've ministered in, in quite a few, and I've rarely witnessed this philosophy of life by the dry, dying or the grieving, even in the church. So obviously, the, the apostle knew something important, that, that to face life and death with the exaltation of Christ in mind takes gospel courage, it takes the prayers of the saints, and it takes the grace of the Holy Spirit. So you see, for the believer, to die is great gain. There, there's a lot to contemplate when thinking about death in heaven, but, but I see two obvious reasons that death is great, gain for the Christian and, and gain for Paul. We, we even sang these things this morning. I love the way the choices of the song come together with the word. First, you see, the first reason that death is gain is because we shall be with Jesus. What makes heaven heaven is that Jesus is there. Not that my family's there. That Jesus is there. He makes heaven heaven. You know, there's a funny little doctrinal error out there called soul sleep. I don't know if you've heard of it. Uh, that raises its ugly head every now and again in the church. The Jehovah's Witnesses and some of the cults believe this. It's called soul sleep or mortalism. And it teaches that when we die, we go to sleep. We don't go to heaven. Until we awake at the second judgment, at the final judgment, at the final resurrection, then we'll, all of us who have died will wake up and we'll go, oh, it's over. And, and the reason people believe this is because there's several references in the New Testament to people dying where they're, they're said to be asleep. But, you know, that's figurative language and not meant to be taken literally. The reason for the language is that in a context in which people doubt the resurrection, it reminds us that people live on. Imagine Paul saying this, for me to live is Christ, but to soul sleep is great gain. How absurd that is, you laugh because it is absurd. Here's another, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, he says that he would prefer to be away from the body 
and at home with the Lord. So imagine now we say it the other way. I would prefer to be away from the body, which is soul sleep. Now, now that's silly. But, but notice this. Paul also doesn't say, for me to live as Christ and to die is to be free from suffering. Although it's true, it's not what drives us. And, and for unbelievers, dying is not freedom from suffering because when unbelievers die, their suffering increases. I've had to counsel a few people over the years who were considering suicide. They're in my office. They're thinking it through. They're trying to decide whether, whether to take their own life. And every one of them was convinced that if they took their life, their suffering would be over. And each time I would ask them this one question, are you sure? Are you really sure that you'll be better off? You see, life and death both look like two evil choices when you're discouraged and you're really deeply depressed. So we contemplate and, and think about which is less evil. But the gospel offers us a, a far different perspective. Paul didn't consider his struggle as something to be freed from. Do you notice that? Struggle is a part of fruitful labor. There's no fruit without struggle. Ask any orchard owner. His struggles, Paul's struggles, were for the advancement of the kingdom because he was struggling for someone else. And it was love that caused him to suffer for others. Now, why would he give that up? Well, only if there was something better. And being with Christ is better. And that's what Jesus told Martha in Luke chapter 10 in that great story about Martha and Mary having Jesus over for dinner. And Martha was concerned about whether her sister Mary was serving well enough. You know, maybe you have one of those ladies in your family. Because Mary was content to sit at the feet of Jesus and listen with joy instead of helping her sister Martha serve. And Martha's pretty sure she's got her sister nailed and complains to Jesus. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. You see, Mary just wanted to be with Jesus. That's what we get when we go to heaven. We get to be with Jesus. Uh, maybe you've heard of a, a woman named Fanny Crosby. She's a great, she was a great hymn writer, prolific hymn writer of the 1800s. And she was, uh, she was uh, blinded in an accident when she was six. And so then she would write these great hymns. And, uh, and, as she grew older, people would say, well, don't you regret not being able to see? And she'd say, no, not at all, because I know the first face I, I will ever see will be the face of my Savior. So the first reason that death is gained for the believer is that we get to be with the Lord. And then the second reason that dying is gained is because we get to be like Jesus. Not only will we be with him, but we will be like him perfect in holiness, resurrected and glorified, sinless and sin-free. He shares the glory of the fellowship of the Trinity with us. It's so awesome. 
Now, I don't know about you, but my life is still so tainted with mixed motives that I can't imagine even a life free from sin. You ever think about that? What would it be like? It's beyond comprehension. You know, the old Negro spirituals from the South were written in the midst of endless suffering, belittled, enslaved, indentured, and they could clearly see the other side of the Jordan and they longed for their home in heaven because they knew there was something better. And then country gospel has its roots among poor Christians living on the farm and, and with the boll weevil and, and the drought and hard times and many farmers wonder if they'll ever pay their bills or even eat. And at that point, the streets of gold look pretty good. And, and, and when our loved ones are old and dying, we often soothe our grief by talking about the end of suffering that will come with death. But beloved, you see, death is our enemy. It's not a gift. It's part of the curse. That's why it hurts. And that's why we fight it tooth and nail. So when I think of heaven, well, I first think of being with my Savior. And then immediately I think about the glory of no more sin. You're going to have the streets of gold. Maybe because I'm a prosperous American, I already know what Paul knew, that material things don't really satisfy, that true riches are stored up in heaven, and that those riches are relational, and they're perfect. So what I long for, beloved, is to breathe free from sin. Can you just imagine to have unbroken and unstained communion with the Father? For the down payment of the Holy Spirit to, to, upon my soul to be filled up in victory in the cross. You know, Jesus looked at the Pharisees and he said, I always do what pleases the Father. Wouldn't you love to just be able to say that with him? I always do what pleases the Father. I want to say it too. And I want to look at my wife and love her unconditionally in a way that my pride never wrecks it and my selfishness never competes. And I want to love my children in a fashion that's always for their good without question or need for wisdom. And I want to love my neighbor as myself without the rancor of racism and concern about whether it's black lives that matter or blue lives that matter or yellow lives that matter or all lives that matter. I want to be freed from stereotypes and the racism that burns in my heart. To, to love the church in unbroken fellowship where we never step on each other's toes and the tears of hurt have disappeared. Oh, man, it's so good. And it's the foundation of the gospel for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And that takes us to the third thing that I wanted to share with you this morning. And that is Christ exalted in life. Now, I've been a leader in the church for 30 years. And the very hardest concept for us to learn is that the abundant life of the gospel is really about living for others. It's not about having power for yourself. It's having power for others. I've preached about this for 25 years. It's a core truth in the scriptures. The two great commands are loving God with your whole heart and loving your neighbor as yourself. And you can't love God without loving your neighbor, and you can't love your neighbor without loving God. It's a package deal. 
And so I have taught this and taught this and I've taught this and I've preached it first to myself lest I miss it and be disqualified somehow. And, and I'm amazed at how hard my flesh fights against this, just in small ways in my own home even. And, and I'm continually surprised by how slow we are as a people to get this. It, it's always about me. And, and, and are my needs being met? It's the first question that visitors ask. Maybe you're visiting this morning. It's one of the first questions that visitors ask when they come. Is this church going to meet my needs? Well, if your greatest need is to love God and to serve other people and to enjoy the fellowship of the gospel in Christ, then this church is for you. Because there's an opportunity to love Christ and to serve other people and to learn the gospel well. It, it's not about me. I, I hate this about myself. Are you like me? So, beloved, let me make it plain. It's not possible to walk deeply with Christ unless your life reflects this value in the kingdom, that we are here for each other, that together we might exalt Christ in life. Jesus says there is no greater love than to lay down your life for a friend in every way. Because death is gain, you see. Get this. Once you've got the death thing settled, that sets you free. And so if you can say with Paul that death is gain, then, then now you're really free. I'm free to live boldly, to live for others for the glory of Christ because I'm free from the biggest concern. And that's what Paul's talking about right here. Look again at verse 24 to 26. He says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. When Paul thought about what was best for him alone, he knew that it was to be beyond the grave with Jesus, to die as great gain. But when he contemplated what was best for the kingdom and the advancement of the gospel, the answer was easy. He would stay. He would continue his appeal for the sake of the church's progress. And I'm glad he met that came to that decision because he was lit free and he preached the gospel for another four or five years and went to Spain and came back to Ephesus and wrote First and Second Timothy and Titus because he was released. Unless you think I'm trying to motivate you this morning by guilt to love others, let me remind you that it's all about grace. Everyone who places their faith in Jesus has been set free from themselves and given grace that's apportioned by Christ. And that grace is given for the sake of the body. The gifts of the Spirit are given to people for the purpose of serving and loving one another in the church not for self-promotion. And that's what Paul says in three large passages about spiritual gifts from God to his people in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and in Ephesians 4. And Paul tells us that God has given us leaders, that your leadership is a gift of grace and a gift from heaven, and that the purpose of those leaders is to equip each of us for ministry 
so that we can do the work of the ministry. It's diaconal ministry. That's a Greek word there, diaconal, for, for works of service. And the goal of that ministry in one another is edification and encouragement and unity in the faith and unity in the knowledge of Jesus, maturity and the fullness of Christ. Now, those are amazing benefits for the sake of the gospel. And we won't have those things, beloved, unless we are poured out for each other. The kingdom doesn't work any other way in our midst. There's no such thing as hermit Christianity. I got mine, stay at home, taste a few sermons on the web, and go to church on Sunday and sing. Jesus says that those who desire to keep their life will lose it. But those who lose their life for the sake of the gospel will find it. And what's amazing is that each one of us is uniquely gifted to serve others and exalt Christ. For some, it's teaching and standing up in front of other people. Miss Tina doesn't want to stand up here and say anything this morning. And I don't blame her. It's not always easy. For some, it's administration, which she's a marvel at, you see? And, and, and for some, it's giving generously. Some people just have no desire to hold on to what there's theirs, and they see a need and they just give it. Maybe that's you. We'll talk after church. For others, <laughs> for others, it's cheerful mercy. You know, we're all supposed to show mercy, but some people just have this down cold. They're, imp they're empaths. They can feel each other's pain and know what the right thing to do is. For some, it's service, cleaning bedpans and comforting the dying. I can't do what Sherry does. And for some, it's encouragement and faith and even prayer. You see, we're made, each of us, in the image of God. And that means that we're designed for community. We're designed for the fellowship of the Trinity. God is meant to share his fellowship and himself with us in Christ. And so we were made in his image for community among ourselves. And this is so woven into us that when somebody's hurting and they even go see an unbelieving counselor, an unbelieving psychologist, and they'll tell a discouraged or depressed person that one way to get well and to get better is to find somebody worse off and pour your life into them. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? But it's wrong. The key to encouragement is not to look down, but to look up. But it may help you to help someone else, but, but the real healing comes by measuring your purpose by the ex exaltation of Christ and first receiving his grace so that he can wash away your depression and your discouragement and your hurt. You see, we don't do ministry to others simply because it's good for us. We serve because it's good for others. It brings glory to Christ Jesus because we've become a reflection of his grace and humility. Our king is a servant king who says, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And then in return for imitating our king in service, it brings joy to our account. And that's why struggle in Christ is fruitful. You don't need deliverance from the struggle. You need this deliverance from the discouragement in the midst of the struggle so that you can live a fruitful life through the struggle. Loving others is always a struggle. 
And that's because I'm so hard-hearted and because you're so hard to love. (laughs) But you see, beloved, the gospel sets us free. Free to love. That's good, isn't it? Now, here's the bad news. The bad news is, is I know that when you're hurting, you want to withdraw. That you feel used and useless and you wonder if there will ever be any joy again. But you see, apart from the body, it doesn't get better. It always gets worse. If you leave and stay away from the brothers and sisters, you only become more discouraged. Discouragement grows and then cynicism breeds. And the result, really, you don't even see it coming, but the result is pride. And pride reigns as we imagine ourselves as the victim of hurt, but somehow not the perpetrator of hurt. And that's, because, that's bad because it feeds a taproot of bitterness and thanklessness, and, and it keeps us from a life of fruitfulness for others in God's church. And, and it's enormously difficult, and, and in fact, near impossible to love Jesus and to hate his church, his bride. You can't be my friend and hate my wife, okay? I know, I know you weren't thinking about it, but you can't. And the same goes true with Jesus. You, you can't be in love with Jesus and hate his church and hate his, his bride. It just doesn't work like that. And, and for some of you, that hurt may keep you from Christ. Don't let it. Because there is good news, you see. And the good news is incredible. It's astonishingly good. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Even the sin of fear and discouragement and trial and the sin of bitterness. And he rose from the dead to give us new life and real purpose in bringing glory to Christ in life and in death. So when you turn the page in your Bible and get to Philippians 2, here's what Paul says. He says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So he says, even if I die under my appeal, I'm still glad I'm going to rejoice with you. And likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. You see, as we seek Christ, as we trust in the power in us, to work in us and through us for his glory, then Christ fills our cups and then those cups overflow into other people's lives and the result is a body of believers held together by the love of Christ Jesus. So I invite you to trust in him today. Maybe some of you have never put your faith in Christ. Would you do it today and find the grace that is so rich and full in Christ Jesus? Maybe some of you are really discouraged in the midst of some circumstance or trial this morning. Would you renew your trust and your hope in Christ? And maybe some of you have been hurt by somebody even in this church. Would you renew your trust in Christ this morning and let the Holy Spirit do his work in you to bring reconciliation and healing? So I invite you to trust and ask him, Beloved, ask him to take away your fear and discouragement in life and death. He will do it if you ask. Ask him to heal the hurts of the past 
and to give you the strength to reconcile with others. He, he will do that if you ask. Ask him to give you real fruitfulness in the struggle of your life to build up your love for other people and your ability to forgive the small things. He, he will do that and more if you will ask. You see, Paul knew that the gospel would never let him down. He eagerly expected and live in hope that Christ would be exalted in his deliverance from fear so that Christ would be further exalted in his life and even in his death. And, and Christ will exalt himself in your deliverance from fear as well, beloved. I know you're afraid. Everybody is. But he will never let you down. For clearly being with him is far better for each of us individually. But beloved, as a church, as a church, Christ is revealed in his exalted glory through us and in us together. And that, my friends, is the glorious grace of the gospel. Let's stand for prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for Jesus. We're constantly amazed at the depths of your love, Lord, for us, that you demonstrate your love that while we're unworthy sinners, while we even reject you and walk away, that you pour out your love for us, that you leave the 90 and 9 sheep in the fold to go chase the one who is wandering and lost and can't find their way home. We thank you for a love that's poured out upon us so richly that everything we do matters for eternity, whether it's in life or in death. And so we pray that you would demonstrate that love for us for, by deepening our love for one another, that we might serve each other in, the, in, the, in, in your love and with your power. And as you do that, Lord, would you exalt yourself in our midst so that you will be exalted in life or in death? As you deliver us from ourselves, we pray that you do it for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen.